0: You're listening to the Living Word Church Podcast. To learn more about Living Word Church and our service times, visit us online at livingwordli.org. I am excited to continue this series in the book of Acts with you, and a couple weeks ago, I came across this video, I was kind of scrolling through social media, maybe you caught it, I think it was posted by Sports Center, and it was this little kid, he's getting off the bus, it was his last day of the first grade, and he does the funniest, probably the best Stone Cold Steve Austin impression I've ever seen in my life, if you don't know who that is, he's a WWE wrestler, he gets off the bus, he's like, it's over, first grade's in the books, or he's screaming, his face is beat red, he's got two milk cartons in his hands. He smashes them together. He pours them all over his face. It was wild, okay? It was crazy. And I don't think anybody watching that video, the millions of people who saw and liked it, I don't think anyone was like, you think this kid likes Stone Cold Steve Austin? Like, of course this kid likes Stone Cold Steve Austin. He loves Stone Cold Steve Austin. He wants to be like Stone Cold Steve Austin, so he imitates Stone Cold Steve Austin. Now I'm done saying Stone Cold Steve Austin, but, but this is a human part of life, right? Like, we just imitate the people that we look up to and that we want to be like. I think about young kids and their dads, right? Like, all these young, these little boys who just want to be like dad, there's this guy I know, he, he recently bought one of those cars that kids can drive around like those battery-operated ones. And when I was a kid, you had two options, red and blue. That was kind of it. That was all that was on the market. Now you can go down to the dealer, right? You can get a make and a model and every color that you want, right? You got to put a down payment on. It's crazy. And so this guy, he bought the exact same make-model color of the truck that he drives in real life for his son. Why? Because his son wants to be like his dad. I think about uh, athletes, and how they wear the same number as their sports hero or want to play the same position in the same sport. Or uh, I even do this, like I think about my own life. It's no secret to the people close to me, I'm a John Mayer fanboy, the Swifties can come at me, I don't care, okay, like I love Mayer, I love the guitar playing, and every time I pick up a guitar it's like ShopRite brand John Mayer just starts to come out, right? Like I just want to sound like him on guitar because I imitate someone that I want to be like. And the authors of scripture, they knew this. They didn't only know it, they leveraged it, they encouraged it, For the gospel, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's saying to the church, hey, like the goal is to imitate Christ. The goal is to be like Christ. But even if that's too lofty of an idea, that sounds too difficult, imitate me. You know me, imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. And imitation, or if I could say it another way, following the example of someone is something that we've been seeing throughout this series in the book of Acts. And so I want to recap a little bit about this series for you in case you missed a part or two. Uh, we're in the book of Acts. It's called Acts because it follows the Acts of the Apostles and the Acts of the Holy Spirit in the first century church. It was written by Luke, and Luke had four main reasons for writing it. Everyone say history. Luke was writing history. Everyone say theology. Luke was writing theology. Apologetics. Everyone say Apologetics. Luke was writing an apologetic or a defense for the Christian faith. And finally, an example. Everyone say example. Luke was writing an example for his readers to follow. And and we've seen Luke cover a lot of topics and answer a lot of questions that were relevant for the early church and they were relevant for us today. Things like, who is the Holy Spirit? What is the role of the Holy Spirit in my life? Does God really do miracles? Can I trust the resurrection of Jesus? Should I follow culture? Should I listen to culture? Or should I obey God over man? And today we're going to address some topics, answer some questions that were not only pertinent to the early church, but I think are very important and relevant for us today. And like I said, we're, we're kind of looking at that fourth reason we're gonna see history, we're gonna see theology today, but, but more than anything, we're looking at an example that Luke wants his readers to follow. And so I don't know how you walked in here today and what you were carrying when you did so. Maybe you walked in here this morning and you are working through, what does it look like for me to live my life as a follower of Jesus? Maybe you're new to the faith, and you're wondering, okay, um, you know, I used to live this way, I used to think this way, act this way, my friends, they all still act that way, but I know I'm supposed to be different, but I don't really know what that means. I don't know how to get there. I don't know what that looks like. Maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time and that's still something you're working through in a season of your life right now. I mean, I know that, that this area of my life needs to change, but I don't know how. Maybe you're realizing that your faith brings along a reputation with it. And that reputation can vary from person to person. So you show up at work or school or extended family gatherings and people hear you're a Christian. And now all of a sudden they associate reputation or baggage along with it. Maybe you hear things like, oh, you're a Christian. So does that mean like you're perfect and you're, you, know, you never do anything immoral and you don't curse? And you're like, all right, that's, that's, a, big st- that's a high standard. I don't know if I can live up to Or maybe people say things to you like this, oh, you're a Christian, so you must be a bigot, or you must hate this group of people, or act this way. And the thing is, people often have ideas about the reputation of the church before they ever know any Christians. How do we work through the reputation of the church? What do we do with our personal reputation? Maybe you've walked in here today, and and you've allowed an idol to creep into your life. Idols can be a tricky thing, man. See, an idol is something that you worship or you value over and above God. And what can be tricky about them is often we take good things and we turn them into God things. And so an example would be like, it's good to love your job. It's good to want to do a good job. It's important for you to to make a living wage. But when your job becomes your God, your life is going to get messed up. Sex is a good and wonderful gift from God, and when practiced in the design that he created it for, man, it is a wonderful thing. It leads to human flourishing, but as soon as it becomes the thing that you're living for, man, it rots you from the inside out. Look, I bet your husband is great. I bet your wife is great. I bet your significant other is awesome. I bet your kids, your grandkids, whoever, they're great, but they have terrible gods, terrible gods. What do you do when an idol has crept into your life? How do you uproot an idol? Is Jesus really worthy of sitting on the throne of your heart today? We're going to talk about it. The last question or or subject that we're going to address might even trigger anxiety in you when I say it. That's death. Some of us are terrified of death. The very idea that death is waiting for every single person in this room, whether it's tomorrow, whether it's weeks, months, years away, it's paralyzing to some of us. And whether you're a Christian, you're not a Christian, you believe that heaven's waiting for you, like it can still be such a scary idea. And I don't want you to feel like I'm coming at you because first of all, I think the fear of death is a very human thing. It's natural for humans to fear death. But don't mishear me. It's not what God wants for you. It's not what God wants for you. We're going to talk about it. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're going to talk about some really important, maybe pertinent things for you. Things like the reputation of the church. Maybe that's a part of your story. We're going to talk about idolatry. Maybe you'll recognize an idol in your life. We'll talk about what waits for us after death. But if you're going to hear one thing out of my mouth today, I hope it's this. I pray it's this, that that there is a God who is worthy of your worship. There is a God who has made a way, not for you to fear death, but to look forward to what waits ahead. And it is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Even if you tune out the rest of this message, which don't, but, but even if you do, I pray you'll hear that one truth. And so where we pick up in the book of Acts is a really important part of the overarching narrative in Acts. And you might wonder, hold on, I didn't really think there was an overarching narrative in Acts. It kind of looks like just random stories that Luke is going back and forth to. Well, if I was going to say there is an overarching narrative, I would say it this Luke is writing about the rapid expansion of the Christian faith, the rapid expansion of the gospel. And so all these little stories that we see, he's zooming in to show us how the church was just exploding in the first century. You can kind of think of acts like this. I don't know if you've ever read a book series or watched a TV series with an ensemble cast. That's like one of these shows that doesn't have one or two main characters. It's got like 15, and they're all over the map, and they're doing their own things, and some of them don't even know that the others exist. But all of their stories contribute to the one overarching narrative. And in this book, it is the rapid expansion of the Christian faith. And and the guy we're looking at today, he doesn't get a huge arc in this story. He gets two chapters. Like, if this was a show, he'd get like an episode or two max, right? Like he doesn't get a whole lot of time, but it's extremely important. Theologians, commentators say that chapter six and seven and the events of chapter six and seven are the turning point in the book of Acts. There is a major shift that happens as a result of these chapters. And so where we are, uh, there is some tension that's starting to bubble up in and around the church, both externally and internally. Externally, there are religious leaders who do not like the gospel message and they're starting to get annoyed. By the gospel. They're starting to get annoyed by the apostles' preaching, and their frustrations are gonna to start to bubble over. But then internally, there's some tension between two different ethnically Jewish groups. So, so there's the Hellenistic Jews who are ethnically Greek, and the Hebraic Jews who are ethnically Hebrew. And their their tension might actually sound a little silly or a little random to us, but the Hellenistic Jews felt that their widows were being overlooked during the mealtime. So when they would gather for corporate meals, uh, they felt like their widows were getting kind of the scrap. They were being saved for last. And so this comes to the apostles and they take it very seriously because they care about the church. And so they said, we got to take care of this problem. The only thing is like Peter and John, they're like, we got to go and preach. Like we got to be out there ministering to people. We got to be praying for people, laying hands on the sick. And so we need to raise up some new leadership to take on this duty. And so this is what it says. This is what Luke writes in verse three of chapter six. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. Now, I don't know about you, but this isn't what I think of when I think of like a good wait staff. Like, like, this is really what they're doing. They're, they're raising up waiters. They need guys who are just going to be able to serve the, the church a little bit better. And they say they need people who are full of the spirit and of wisdom. Like, when I think of a good waiter, I think, like, charming, fast on his feet. Maybe he can upsell dessert at the end of the meal, right? Like, he gets good tips. Like, I worked in food for a while. And in my interview process, there was no, like, rate your fullness of spirit and wisdom. right? like, that, that wasn't a part of my interview. But I think it's because the apostles cared about something other than competency here. Not that they didn't care about comp- but but they, they cared about something bigger than competency. They cared about the reputation of God's church they knew that the reputation of God's church from from the top to the bottom needed to be leaders and servants who are full of wisdom and spirit, who are caring, loving, devoted to each other, devoted to Jesus and his kingdom. So that means whether you're out preaching and laying hands on the sick or you're waiting and bussing tables, the standard needs to be high because often the reputation of the church makes it to people's ears before the message of the church ever does. It's just the truth. People often hear about Christians before they ever hear from Christians. And so I don't know what it is that you do here. Maybe you volunteer here. If you do, I first want to say we love our volunteers. Man, I get to work with a lot of volunteers and team leaders, and and I love it. I love our volunteers. But it's easy when you're volunteering at a church to start playing the comparison game, to start saying things like, oh, man, what I do, it doesn't really matter Especially not when I compare it to this person or that person. We start to play the comparison game. You start to drift into complacency. It can be detrimental to not only your reputation, but the reputation of the church. So let me just say loud and clear, what you do here matters. Like if you are a volunteer here at Living Word Church, what you do matters. We don't have volunteer positions to make you feel better about yourself. We don't have volunteer positions to make you feel included. We have them because we think they matter. We believe that they contribute to the kingdom of God. And so if we thought for some reason that a a position no longer did that, we would get rid of it. So let me just say once and for all, if you volunteer here, what you do matters. But when you fall into complacency, when you fall into the comparison game, it gets dangerous. You start to think things like, well, who cares if I show up a little late or I don't try very hard? Or if maybe you hold a position where you kind of have to prepare a little bit the week before, man, it just doesn't matter if I prepare, no one's going to care. No, your reputation matters. It contributes to the reputation of the church. And the reputation of the church matters. What you do at at work, at school, at home, it matters. You might think, well, well, what what does it matter how I act or speak or behave as long as I'm a good accountant or I'm a good nurse or I'm a good contractor? Like as long as I do good work, shouldn't that be all that matters? No, what you do matters. The way that people see you act, speak, treat others, it contributes to the reputation of God's church. If you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe this has been a part of your story. Maybe you've heard about God's church and the reputation before you ever stepped foot into the church. And if that's you, man, first of all, I'm glad you're here because the example we're looking at is what we as Living Word Church are aiming for. The example, the reputation that God's church is supposed to hold, full of wisdom, full of the spirit, loving towards others, devoted to Jesus, devoted towards unity. And if you're a Christian in the room, what is your reputation? How does it contribute to the reputation of God's church? In verse 5, Luke writes, This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. I'm not sure if you can tell who our main guy is. Maybe it's the guy who gets the high school superlative after his name, right? Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Like, this is the exact kind of guy that they're looking for. The exact kind of guy. And I want you to notice too, the reason Luke includes all these names is because Luke is writing history, right? Like he's writing what actually happened. So even though we're not talking about these guys, this is what really happened. And so I want you to see with me what Stephen does with his new position, which remember is a waiter. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people doesn't sound like waiting tables. Like I thought he was supposed to just be serving food. Yeah, but Stephen, I really believe, had enough faith to know that God was going to use him regardless of his position, regardless of who he was with. He believed that God was going to use him. And look, uh, I don't know this for sure. I'm just kind of assuming. But I imagine it would have been easy for some of these guys to just show up, do the job, and go home. It would have been easy for some of these guys to even get a little frustrated. Man, they got to serve in food. Like, don't they see how gifted I am? Don't they see how talented I am? Have you ever heard Peter preach? I should be out there preaching. You ever heard John pray? Man, I should be out there praying. I'm not saying that they did this, but I am saying I think some of us would do it if we were in the same position they were. But Stephen his identity wasn't wrapped up in his position. It wasn't wrapped up in his own ability. It was wrapped up in his faith in God. And he had enough faith to believe that God was going to use him regardless of his position, regardless of his identity. You know, Stephen is one of those rare guys in scripture that nothing negative is said about him. Like even think of the heroes of the faith, right? Moses, murderer, doubted God. David, murderer, adulterer, Paul, murderer. Like, are you sensing the theme here? These great uh, heroes of the faith, uh, they, they, they're filled with a riddled history of sin. Yet Stephen, who was just a waiter, trusted God to use him. And not, not a negative thing is said about him in scripture. He's such a great example of trusting God and letting God use you Regardless of your position, regardless of where you are. But remember, where we're at in this narrative, there's a lot of tension. And so... There are members of different Jewish backgrounds who heard Stephen's preaching, they saw him doing signs and wonders, and they started to grumble, and they started to grow frustrated. And so they would argue with him, and they would come against him. But the thing about Stephen is, like, he was so eloquent, he was so wise that they had nothing to come against him for. Like, he could just take every attack, every argument, and spin it, right? And so they were left with one option. If they wanted to silence him, they had to accuse him of false accusations, so they bring him before the Sanhedrin, which is the collection of, of Israelite elders, and they start bringing false witnesses and false accusations against him. This is what Luke writes in verse 13. So they presented false witnesses who said, this man never stops speaking against the holy place and the law, for we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. So the charge against Stephen was blasphemy. The charge against him was that he was preaching Jesus would destroy the temple, abolish the law, which is not true. And so this launches Stephen into his famous sermon, right? If you've grown up in church, you've probably heard about Stephen's sermon. And what it is, is this profound theological like mic drop in front of the Israelite elders. And he walks through the Old Testament. Because remember, Luke was writing theology as well. So, so he writes this, this beautiful, eloquent sermon where he drops profound theological knowledge and it's all pointed towards the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. So I'm gonna kind of paint with some broad strokes here because he goes on for about 50 verses. So Abraham, he starts with Abraham. And he says, God called Abraham out of Canaan. and He said, I'm gonna make your descendants into a great nation. They're gonna bless the whole earth. But first... Your descendants will spend 400 years in captivity, in slavery. And then I will lead them out of that, and I'll lead them into a promised land. And, and so Abraham had his son Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob would have a radical encounter with God, and his name would be changed to Israel. And Israel would have 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel. And one of Israel's sons named Joseph was betrayed by his brothers as a boy and sold into slavery. And after a lifetime of disappointment and abuse, Joseph finds himself in leadership in Egypt. And so as a grown man, he forgives his brothers. He invites them and his father to live and settle in Egypt. And there they are and generations pass and the descendants of Israel grow and grow and grow. And they flourish until the Egyptians start to be threatened by the descendants of Israel. And so they begin to oppress them. They begin to enslave them. And there, the descendants of Israel are enslaved and oppressed by the Egyptians for hundreds of years. But God did not forget the promise he had made to Abraham. So he raises up Moses. And he calls Moses to deliver God's people. And and God does many signs and wonders through Moses. And he rescues them mightily from the hands of the Egyptians. Yet the Israelites find themselves in the wilderness... Doubting the very God who did nothing but deliver them and remain faithful to his promises. God who who had done nothing but show himself to be faithful, they reject him in favor of idolatry. And they begin to worship a golden calf. And if you know anything about Israel's story, you know this is then the pattern that then ensues for hundreds of, of years, right? Up until really the early church. The Israelites are constantly uh, being rescued by God, being reminded of God's faithfulness, and then slowly rejecting him and falling into their idolatry. And what Stephen is saying is that the, the Israelite leaders are doing the exact same thing right before his eyes, They're rejecting God in favor of their idols. This is what he says in verse 51 of chapter seven. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Just like their ancestors, they're rejecting God In favor of their idols. And and if I were going to say what their idol was, it was the idol of legalism. It was the idol of religiosity and religious system. They were so caught up in their own performance that they couldn't even recognize the Messiah that was right in front of them. Like God dwelled among his people. He died on the cross for their sin. He rose again on the third day in accordance with the scripture. They should have recognized him, but they rejected him. Like the thing about these Israelite leaders, you got to understand, is like they knew their Old Testament, right? It wasn't the Old Testament back then. It was just the Bible, right? So, so, so they knew it. And maybe you and I don't know it very well. Maybe you've never even cracked it open. But, but they had books upon books of the Old Testament memorized. Like they knew Isaiah 53. They knew Jeremiah 31. Well, they knew what the prophets said. They should have recognized the Messiah, but they rejected him. They became his very murderers. In the Gospels, Jesus quotes Psalm 118. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The one that the Jewish leaders should have been waiting for, expecting, the one who would have brought their faith together, completed it, who would have had everything rest upon him, they rejected him. And the same thing is happening right in front of Stephen. And the thing is, is that history has a habit of repeating itself. For us today, you and I are in danger of rejecting God in favor of our idols. And look, it looks different, right? Every age, every iteration has different idols. The uh, Israelites in the Old Testament, they worshiped golden calves and statues and Baal and, and Molech and all these different fake gods, in the first century, like I said, I think the Jewish leaders, they were worshiping their legalism. They were worshiping their religious system. The Gentiles, they had, they had God's galore, right? Like they had Zeus, they had Poseidon, they had Artemis, they had Percy Jackson, like they had them all. My, my people over here got the Percy Jackson. Like, but what about you and me? Like what, what, what gods, what, what idols are you rejecting God to worship at the altar of? Are you rejecting God to worship at the altar of money? Are you rejecting God to worship at the altar of sex, of comfort? Are you rejecting God to worship at the altar of man and man's opinion and culture? Or is your worship rightly focused on the only one who deserves it, on Jesus, who fulfilled the scriptures, who died for our sins, who rose again to provide us with freedom and forgiveness and eternal life? He's the only one who is worthy of your worship today. Stephen believed it. He's about to show us what it looks like to believe it because what happens is his sermon sparks outrage among the people, and they seek to put him to death. And so this is what Luke writes in verse 58. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, and the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. After saying this, he fell asleep. This is what Stephen gets in, in, in return for his faithfulness. This is what Stephen gets, the The only guy who's never had a negative word said about him, the guy who's known for being full of faith, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. He stands up for truth, and he's brutally executed by stoning. And I think it's easy for us to read it and wonder why and question and and despair and say, well, why does it feel like he's being punished? Like, Shouldn't he have been rescued? Why didn't God provide a way for him to survive or to be rescued? Why didn't someone stand up and say anything? Shouldn't he have been rewarded for his faithfulness? And I think if Stephen was standing right here in front of us, he would say, I was rewarded. I was rewarded with a martyr's death in the likeness of my Savior, and I was rewarded with an eternity with closeness with him. And I get that this is a bitter pill for us to swallow in our Western minds, but suffering for the sake of the gospel, death for the sake of the gospel is a blessing and an honor. In 1 Peter 4, Peter writes, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. For if you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory rests on you. He says, when you suffer for the gospel, the spirit rests on you. You're blessed. Stephen knew it. He died like he knew it with his eyes fixed on Jesus. And I think for some of us, the idea of suffering, the idea of death, we just can't get past it. Whether you're a believer or not, whether you believe that heaven awaits you and and God is preparing a place for you, it's just hard for you to get past this idea of death and eternity. And if I had to guess what might be the problem, what might be the thing that's holding you back, what I would ask you is, where is your treasure stored up? In Matthew 6, Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you place your treasure, the things that you value, the things that you hope for, the things you can't live without, that's where your heart is. So when that's tied up in things of the earth, things of this life, Whether that's materialism, whether that's an idol, whether that's even an earthly relationship, it's no wonder that you can't get past death and eternity because your heart is here. But when your heart is there, when your heart is with Jesus, when your heart and your treasure is focused on him, then you don't fear death, you don't question death, you welcome it because it means closeness with your Savior. This is the example that Stephen is for you and for me. He was focused and fixated and devoted to Jesus in his life, in his worship, and in his death. And what I find so interesting, and I think is really purposeful here, is once the story gets rolling, like once we kind of picked up Stephen's story, there's only one other person who is mentioned by name in this story. And his name is Saul. And Luke purposefully pictures Saul at the complete opposite end of the spectrum from Stephen. This is what he writes in chapter eight, verse one. Saul agreed with putting Stephen to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So Stephen's death marks an age of persecution for the church. That turning point, that, that thing that changes everything for the early church, it's Stephen's death. And it marks and sparks an age of persecution for the church. And Saul is one of the men leading that charge. He wanted to exterminate every follower of Jesus. And notice how in those verses, right, Stephen was mourned over by devout men, but Saul, he was ravaging the church, complete opposite ends of the spectrum. But in a few weeks, we're going to see this man, Saul, have a radical encounter with the risen Jesus. And Saul is going to be renamed to Paul. And Paul is going to go on to write 13 out of the 27 New Testament books. Paul is going to go on to be the most important church planner, theologian, uh, Christian author that ever lived, But commentators and theologians agree that Paul is going to carry the weight of this day for the rest of his life. See, Saul may have never cast a stone, but he was the reason Stephen's dead. And in his writings, you see things that signal to the fact that he just never really got over the death of Stephen. Stephen, who should have been his friend. Stephen, who should have been his brother. Stephen, who he should have prayed with. He should have laughed with. He should have cried with. He should have traveled with. He should have marveled over the Old Testament scriptures with. Stephen, who should have been like his, his confidant, his brother, his partner. He's the reason he's dead. And this man, who is at first pictured as the complete opposite of Stephen, will eventually walk the same road that Stephen walked. He will preach truth. He will be hated for it. He will be thrown in prison for it and ultimately give his life for the gospel. Second Timothy is likely the last thing that Paul wrote before his death. It is certainly the last thing that we have from Paul. And it could be the last thing he wrote days or weeks before his execution in Rome. He writes Second Timothy with an urgency because he knows his death is at hand. And this is what he writes in Second Timothy 4. I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. And I wonder if Paul was thinking of Stephen while he wrote those words. Paul, like Stephen, died with his eyes Fixed on Jesus. And this is the example that Luke wants us, his readers, to follow. Stephen is an example of being faithfully devoted to Jesus. We see it in every aspect of his story. He is devoted to Jesus in his life. He is devoted to Jesus in his theology, in his worship. He wants to call people towards giving up their idols and rightly focusing their worship on Jesus. And he is devoted to Jesus in his death. He doesn't question death. He doesn't doubt. He doesn't despair. He welcomes it because his treasure was in heaven. He had his eyes fixed on Jesus. Stephen is an example of being faithfully devoted to Jesus. And so by way of application, I have a couple questions for you to ask yourself to just do some self-reflection. And what they're designed to do is just kind of see how you personally measure up to the examples set before us in scripture. Not to make you feel bad about yourself, not to do anything other than to help you work on what God is calling you to work on. And so, First question, what is your reputation? Where is it found? Are you like Stephen? Are you full of faith? Are you full of wisdom? Are you full of the spirit? Is it found in your relentless devotion to Jesus or something else entirely? Do you have a good reputation? Do you have a bad reputation? Is your reputation and your identity rooted in yourself? Is it in your own ability? Is it in your position? Or is it rightly rooted in God? Does your reputation contribute positively or negatively to the reputation of God's church? Look, I'm not promoting legalism. I'm not not saying that you should live some performance-based lifestyle where you just care uh, way too much about what people think of you. What I am saying is we ought to take stock of how we're living and how it measures up to the example set before us in God's word. Second question, where is your worship? Is there an idol in your life? Have you allowed an idol to creep in? Are you worshiping something other than God? Are you worshiping at the altar of money or of sex, of comfort, of culture, and man's opinion? If so, how do we uproot an idol? Man, this could be a a message in itself, so I'll keep it brief, but, but all idolatry is rooted in a lie. It's rooted in the lie that God is not good. He is not who he says he is. Therefore, this idol will give me something that God is withholding from me. And so what do you do when you are confronted with this lie? Well, well, the only weapon that can kill a lie is the truth. And so you surround yourself with truth. You consume yourself with truth. You make it impossible for yourself to be confronted with the lie without being reminded of the truth. And then you starve the idol. So you figure out what feeds it, and then you starve it. So whenever I'm out with these people, it brings me to this place. Whenever I watch this kind of movie, TV show, man, it leads me down the road of sexual impurity. Whenever I go down the Amazon shopping trail, right? Like I just end up in materialism, right? Like whatever the idol is, you figure out what feeds it and you starve it. And then you replace it with worship for the one who, the only one who deserves your worship. Finally, where is your treasure? Or if I could say it this way, where is your heart? Is your heart and your treasures stored up in heaven? Do you eagerly await the day when you will be united with your Savior? Or have you stored up treasures for yourself on earth? And look, I get it. Like, I store up stupid treasure for myself on earth all the time. We're like, just wrapped up in things that don't matter. And when we do this We lose sight of the promise of heaven. We lose sight of an eternity of freedom from sin, an eternity spent with loved ones from our life, an eternity spent in perfect creation, and best of all, an eternity spent in closeness with the one who gave himself for you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, like I said earlier, if you're going to walk out of here having heard one thing, it's that, that there is a God who is worthy of your worship. There is a God who gave himself on the cross for you so that you could be fully, freely and forever forgiven in him. That he was risen from the grave and according to the scriptures, having victory over sin and death so that you could be welcomed into the family of God and have eternal life with him forever. That is the truth this morning and if you wanna place your trust in Jesus, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that in just a moment when we pray. After we pray, we're going to sing a song. It's called Hymn of Heaven. And there's this one verse from the song that I love. It says, on that day, we join the resurrection and we'll stand beside the heroes of the faith. And with one voice, a thousand generations will sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. If you've placed your trust in Jesus, if Jesus is the Lord of your life and you are obedient to him, there will be a day where you and I will stand next to Stephen and Paul and Moses and David and we will worship the only one worthy, Of our worship. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for who you are, God, for the truth that you and your death and your resurrection has made a way for us to be freely, fully, and forever forgiven, to have eternal life in you, to be welcomed into your family, Lord God. We do not take that lightly this morning. God, we express gratitude for that truth, Lord God, thank you for your word that provides an example for us, an example to follow like Stephen, like Paul, ultimately like Jesus, an example of being devoted to you in your heavenly kingdom, in life, in worship, and even unto death. I pray, Lord God, that you would show us, that you would teach us, Holy Spirit, how to be devoted to you in a deeper way this morning. In life, in our reputation, in the way we conduct ourselves, in our worship, that we would uproot idols and, and rightly focus our worship on you and even unto death, Lord God. That we would remember how your word tells us it is a blessing and an honor to suffer and die for the sake of the gospel, Lord God. Let us not take that lightly. If you want to place your trust in Jesus this morning, you can pray this with me Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me. And I believe that you rose again. I believe that your death and resurrection provide forgiveness for my sin, freedom from my struggle, and a life of eternity spent with you. Lord God, would you come into my heart this morning? Would you change my life? Holy Spirit, would you teach me obedience? And by the way, if you prayed that or something like that, it's not about a combination of words that saves you. We like to say this all the time. It is about your heart, the position of your heart. God sees you. And if you prayed that or something like that, there there is a celebration happening in heaven right now. So if you pray that, I would just love it for you to come find me, come find Pastor Doug, come find someone that's wearing a Living Word shirt. We would love to talk to you a little bit about what that looks like and what next steps lie ahead of you. Holy Spirit, be with us in our worship. In this last song, let it just be an exercise, a glimpse into what it will be like on that day when we worship the lamb who was slain for us. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this all in your name. Amen.